Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome in to the Jeff Andreas Show. Thanks so much for being with me here today. It is Thursday, April the 30th. Yeah, we almost made it through the month here. Got a good show lined up for you here today. I caught up with BC Health Minister Adrian Dix here earlier this morning. We talked about, uh, you know, when things can really start to reopen, the question that's on everyone's mind these days. And really, there is no clear answer, but we'll uh, get an update there from the health minister. We also spoke on what the status of non-essential surgeries is right now, and we'll get an overall update here on personal protective equipment, specifically relating to those respirators for our health care workers. And to end off today's show, while well, I'm set to be joined by the mayor of Sun Peaks, Mr. Al Rain, uh, we're going to discuss why his community is electing not to increase taxes for its residents this year. But to begin today's show, well, I wanted to talk about the process of peer review for scientific research during this COVID-19 world. I'm joined now by the executive editor and chief of the Canadian Science Publishing Journals, and he's also a University of Saskatchewan biologist, Jim Germida. Jim, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, Jeff. So, Jim, I wanted to start by asking you just about the sheer volume of research that's being done and submitted for review right now. You know, has that changed in the past few months? And are there concerns with that peer review process if there is too much stuff coming in at the same time? We are always seeing uh, lots of submissions to our journals Mm -hmm. and all of the journals around the world are are seeing lots and lots of of submissions. And many journals have what you would call fast track where they can process a a paper that's been submitted and get it peer reviewed very quickly, especially if the information is extremely important as it relates to say, for example, research on COVID-19 or coronaviruses in general. And the other thing that's important to point out is that Almost every publisher that I'm aware of has opened up their database, their um, their back issues of papers related to coronaviruses, uh, which are related to, to COVID-19, and, and they've made that freely available to, to public, to researchers, and the like. So there is a pressure to, to get things turned around quickly. Uh, I think all reputable journals are doing that. Uh, That being said, there are a number of venues such as preprint servers where people can submit something that hasn't been peer reviewed. It's given, um, you know, very little attention. There's an opportunity for anyone and everyone to read that. And in in some disciplines, it it provides a very good way to critique the story and to get feedback on the story. Because that's what science is. It's all about storytelling and making sure that the story that you're telling is accurate and factual and and conveys a true picture of what's really going on. And so these preprint servers do offer a venue for some people to come and put things up that aren't really accurate. They're not factual. And that can be problematic. And so whether it's a research scientist or uh, someone in the general public, you just have to be aware of that and you have to be cautious and you have to take your time and work your way through things. Is it harder, though, to to take that extra time just because there is such a need for, you know, we're we're trying to obviously come up with a vaccine for COVID-19, right? That seems to be the main thing that the general public is talking about. And and when, you know, scientists are doing research to try to come up with that, I mean, does does the fact that there is uh, more of a rapid need, I guess, for for these kinds of uh, research to be done, does what what kinds of impacts does that have on the ability to fact check? I mean, does that slow things down? 
Well, you know, you, even in the case of developing a vaccine, you have to be extremely careful. Normally, a, a vaccine could take years to develop because you want to ensure that it's safe. And, you know, as you read the news, as I read the news, as people read the news right now, you're, you're seeing all types of reports on very reputable pharmaceutical companies and governments um, and universities working very actively to fast-track vaccine development. And they're even doing some preliminary uh, vaccine testing uh, in Europe and in the United States and, and, and won't be too long in Canada. And those preliminary uh, vaccine trials will, will show us whether the vaccine is successful, whether it's going to elicit an immune response to, to provide some protective antibodies. And then it'll take a series of uh, trials to demonstrate that, yes, that's true and, and that the, the vaccine is safe. And then, of course, you have to scale up production to get this vaccine available for many, many people. I think the, um, the influenza, uh, not the influenza, but the swine flu um, in 2009, when we needed to develop a vaccine for that, you know, there, there was a rush in the U.S. to develop a, a fast track of vaccine. There were some problems with it. And so I think people need to be cautious. And I think governments are going to be cautious. And I think um, everyone's going to do their best to, to fast track vaccines and then of course to look at potential treatments to try to provide protection and hopefully help people who become infected with COVID-19. So I mean I guess how long does a a peer review process normally take for for just whatever say someone submits their research and and uh, you know someone's starting to look it over how long does that usually take to to really get a good handle on whether or not something is is a really good piece of work? Normally, um, in, in many journals, a peer review process could take months, um, up to maybe even four or five or six months, and then it would even take longer for papers to be published. What many journals have, as I said, is a system whereby the peer review can be expedited, and so if it's a really urgent piece of information that needs to get right away, uh, they could get a peer review done within a, a few days or uh, a few weeks, and then, of course, many journals will actually publish an accepted version of the manuscript and what they might call now in it's it's sort of like a it's not a final version of the uh, manuscript that's been copy edited and, and made to look uh, you know formatted appropriately but it's it's something that's been peer-reviewed it's been scrutinized and it's 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 been scientifically tested that way and so it's available online almost instantaneous as soon as that papers accepted. So if, if the journals and the editors are, are good, they can get something through the uh, reputable peer review process within a matter of, as I say, weeks and, and get that up. And, and many journals are doing that. And many um, both for-profit and non-for-profit publishers are doing their best to get that information out there because it is critical. And at the same time, you want to make sure that the, uh, the best science, the uh, factual science, the science has been tested is, is the stuff that you're putting up. What, what is, is there any danger that comes with that? Right, You mentioned it usually takes a couple of months at the very least to, to go through that peer review process. But if you're expediting it and doing it in a couple of weeks, uh, you know, is there a concern that comes with fast tracking that data? No. The, the, one of the problems that we have, Jeff, is that there are hundreds and thousands of journals and publishers out mm-hmm. there. And, and as a consequence, many of my colleagues in the scientific community get burdened with way too many requests to do peer reviews. Right. And of course, you're also compounding the problem because you have what you might refer to as a predatory journal or a predatory publisher who just don't do peer reviews at all. They just get things up and published. And that's one of the problems you have to be careful with. Mm-hmm. But, but people people recognize that if, um, if, if I'm the editor of 
president of the medical journal, I know I have an important paper that's related to COVID-19 or something else, I'll reach out to the experts, the colleagues, and explain the situation. And many times people will say, yes, I'm, ha- I'm happy to do that review for you. I'll turn it around very quickly. They'll make it a priority, and they'll get it done really quickly as opposed to taking you know, months to or, or weeks to actually finish that review. So that's how I would approach it. And I think that's what editors would do is actually approach the experts, their colleagues, and, and ask them if they'd be prepared to do an expedited review. Okay. Uh, now, one of the reasons, you know, I, I came across uh, your, your personal contact was because of this article I was reading just talking about uh, that, you know, maybe corners were being cut in the peer review process just because there is so much volume coming through in terms of COVID-19 research. And, and the, the article I mentioned uh, talked about, you know, two weeks ago, it was reported that Lit COVID, which is a hub for papers on COVID-19, some more than 1,600 uh, topics published in that one week alone. I guess, you know, it, it sounds like a lot when we're talking about 1600 pieces i mean is there a burden i guess for people who are doing that peer reviewing then but you had mentioned there's a lot of people that are calling to say hey can you review this piece of work that i did um, and i assume there's probably an overabundance of those types of calls i mean are, are people who are doing that peer review process getting maybe a little bit overburdened is that possible could that be something that happens you know as we go through this pandemic a little bit further well, it, it could. I mean, it's certainly a possibility that people will become overburdened with the request to do peer reviews, especially if you're an expert in an area that, that the paper is focused on. And, and again, you've got two types of um, situations. You've got peer-reviewed papers, but you also have these preprint servers where people will post stuff that hasn't been peer-reviewed. And uh, you may find that, that after a, a short period of time or even a long period of time, that, that stuff on that preprint server has to be retracted. It has to be withdrawn because it's, it's actually not factual it's actually saying things that could be harmful and it, it suddenly comes to light through people scrutinizing it and and, and, and reading it uh and recognizing that that this is a problem and then they, they obviously have to notify the manager of those preprint servers to get that off in terms of reputable publishers and reputable journals uh sure <laughs> people will get overburdened with requests to review papers and so you always need to be cautious and careful to um to make sure as an editor, that you're, you're screening those papers as they come in. You're looking for ones that really, really appear in your mind to be the thing that needs to get the most attention, and those are the ones you're prioritizing and sending into the uh, is peer reviewers to get them right, right done as soon as possible. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I think that's pretty much all, Jim. I mean, uh, I, you know, I, like I said, I was reading this article and it made me a little bit cautious or concerned about the potential for um, maybe some lackluster reviews being done and just what that does to the actual work, right? Obviously, the scientists who are involved in this stuff are, are working very hard to try to get out the best possible work done, but it does, of course, need to be reviewed and looked over. And I just, you know, this article, like I said, brought up some concerns that maybe that isn't happening um, as diligently as it normally is but uh, you know from from everything you you've told me here so far it sounds like maybe that's not as big a worry as uh, maybe some people out there have, have led me to believe at this point in time um, any anything you want to add yeah. while I have you sure Jeff well, I, I think the important thing to to remember for you for me for anyone uh, when you're reading the news or listening to a media outlet 
you want to you want to trust your instincts. You want to make sure that you are getting honest, reliable coverage. You want to make sure that the facts are accurate. You don't want uh, hyperbole. You want you want people to be truthful. And 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 I think that's what all of us are trying to do in the scientific uh, publishing world. We're trying to publish the best science. We're trying to make sure it is subjected to peer review. And if it's a critical piece of information, we're trying to expedite that review process and get that stuff published as soon as possible. And and I think all the reputable publishers are doing that. I think they're very careful. Um, and, and of course, all of our colleagues are working on this really important uh, issue of COVID-19. And, and I think collectively, eventually we'll get a solution that will help everybody. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jim. Really do appreciate it. Jeff, you take care. You have a great day. That was Jim Jermida, a University of Saskatchewan biologist and executive editor-in-chief of the Canadian Science Publishing Journal. So there you go. Some interesting stuff there on how that process is working. And, you know, not, not a ton of changes, I guess, from what he said to me right now. Like I said, I thought there was maybe a few more corners being cut at this point in time from, from what he told me. Those concerns on my end have been eased a little bit. But, uh, of course, as we continue to go through this, uh, more and more papers are going to pile up. And then, you know, that process uh, may be a little bit uh, less less uh, looked over, less uh, supervised here moving forward, but that'll be something to, to look at down the road. Well, let's take a quick break, and coming up afterwards, I'll be joined by British Columbia's Minister of Health, Adrian Dick, so stick around, and I'll be right back. The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk at RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show. Thanks for being with me here today on Radio NL. It is, of course, Thursday, April 30th. Earlier this morning, I caught up with BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. Minister Dix, how are you doing today? Hi. So I wanted to start with this. It's not necessarily my favorite question, and I probably already know the answer, but it's one that everyone seems to want to know and, and you know, want to ask. When, when are things going to start to ease? And the only reason I'm asking, I know Dr. Henry says she's continuing to look at mid to late May, and sort of is that the track that we find ourselves on for even just the smallest of easing of restrictions? Well, I think the answer is yes, but it's going to be um, uh, a process. I always talk about being 100% all in. We're going to have to continue to be 100% all in. So what will happen in the coming months is not going back to what life was like in December, but it's going to be a new normal uh, in order to for us to return to more of the activities we can do. People are interested. They can go to page 34 of the presentation we gave uh, we could go last Friday. It's on the BCCDC website. And what they'll see is this, that right now we're functioning in terms of our interactions at about 30% of normal, right? Mm-hmm. And what it says is basically we can take that up to about 60% of normal, not 100%, 60% of normal, and maintain a relatively low transmission. But that's a difficult task, you know, when we're telling people very clearly what they should do without nuance, that's an easy task, and people have responded in BC, I think, better than just about anywhere else to the measures we've had to take, and, I'm, and it's really been extraordinary, very difficult, but extraordinary. So we're going to have to uh, try and do more, but stay safe. What does that mean in workplaces? It means not working sick. It means washing our hands all the time. It means doing things that we used to do closer at a greater distance. And for some workplaces, that'll be easier to do than others. You know, Premier Legault in Quebec recently announced this week, he said, here's my opening up plan. On May 11th, we're going to um, allow the construction industry to operate again. Well, we never closed the construction industry in B.C. 
we're going to allow large industry to operate again. Well, we never closed large industry in BC, uh, and but we did ensure that rules were established that those businesses worked with us on to ensure that those workplaces remained safe and that they were not a risk. And that's going to be required of every industry as we go forward. Uh, one of the, one of the questions that uh, you know had been coming up a, a lot uh, when we were first starting to have these daily press briefings, and uh, you know I just haven't heard it as much in in recent uh, history here was uh, just PPE. What what is the state of PPE right now in this province? You know what are supply chains looking like? I know you've touched on it briefly here and there, but uh, I just wonder if I can get a little bit more detail on sort of what the current state of personal protective equipment is right now for our healthcare workers in British Columbia. So, uh, international supply chains are a mess, right? All of our traditional suppliers, we're still getting some supplies from them, but nothing like uh, we were used to getting, and it's very inconsistent. Trying to get supplies, for example, of the United States over the last month or so has been very, very, very difficult. If I had more varies, I'd add those as well. And, uh, and so we've had to seek out new sources of supply. And we've been quite successful in doing two things. One, using our existing supply more efficiently, and that's to the great credit of our healthcare workers everywhere in BC. And secondly, we have been able to source new supply. But when you source new supply, you know, it's different than just getting it from your traditional suppliers. We've been getting um, N95 respirators from 3M for a long time. And since we can't get them or not get them in any kind, like anything like the numbers we need, mm-hmm. we have to seek other supplies. And that means when we get new products, initially we have to run tests on that product, tests on fit, tests on effect- effectiveness. And so, for example, since the beginning of April, we've got something just over 3 million N95 respirators, which we have not yet put into service because we're testing them. We're making sure they're good. We're making sure they're right before we put them on our healthcare workers. Then we're going to have to work on with uh, doctors and nurses and healthcare workers so that uh, they work on the fit and that they're properly trained with this PPE. N95 isn't a brand of respirator. It's a type of respirator. So many companies can do it, but we've got to make sure our, our systems are safe. So we've done a pretty good job procuring it, but it's still a very, very challenging situation in the healthcare system. Uh, and we've maintained supplies and adequate supplies sometimes day to day, but uh, we need at some point to move to, obviously, to um, put all of this uh, supply we've bought into service. And uh, that requires testing. And we've been doing that, and it's been going gone actually quite well. And then we got to work with healthcare workers. What, what does that testing look like, just in terms of numbers? I mean, you mentioned three million masks. I assume we're not testing each individual mask on its own. I mean, are, is there a process? Are you testing one out of every thousand? Yeah. Do you know what that looks like? It, the, there's a whole testing process organized by the Provincial Health Services Authority that requires two sets of things. One, testing the effectiveness of mask N95 refers to 95% uh, against things that can come into your mouth, right? Mm-hmm. Basically, against all, all particles that come into your mouth. That's the, N90, that's the 95%. The 95 part refers to 95%. And, um, and so what that requires is a test run on the batches of masks to make sure they're effective. That includes sending masks away because there are some machines that do this quite efficiently and in detail. 
Um, and, uh, and so uh, doing both sets of those things. And then we have to work on the issue of fit, which is very important when you have different masks, right? So mm-hmm. um, there are um, uh, the smaller N95 masks have tended to fit um, some healthcare workers better than most, and those are the ones that have been under the most pressure, the ones that best fit nurses and best fit people with, uh, for want of a better term, smaller faces, right? And so there's an issue around fit as well where you have to work with healthcare workers, but that means testing these masks in detail. So not every mask, but testing each batch of masks and doing sufficient testing to satisfy us that the masks are safe. And that involves testing here in British Columbia, and that has also involved sending uh, sending masks away to be tested. We're also purchasing testing equipment to make this process more efficient because obviously we're going to be dealing with COVID-19 for some time to come. Um, so with that, I, I said, I guess, you know, is the supply right now sounds like it's probably not, not in dire straits, I guess. I mean, there's obviously concern that's coming with the amount of PPE supply, but it doesn't sound like right in this moment that it's, um, you know, anyone's going to be without at this point in the game. But uh, I guess, is there concern right now that uh, if there was to be a second wave in the fall and we're looking at the supply chains and what's happening there, uh, if there isn't more masks uh, sourced locally, that there could be a, a problem that comes, you know, as we look down the line? Well, I think there, there is a problem now, although I think by bringing all this material over and preparing it, I think we can address that problem. But clearly, um, we're going to have to stockpile equipment um, in a way that hasn't been done in any jurisdiction before. Because if the international market for that equipment can so easily be disrupted, we need some. Uh, we need domestic supply. We need supply that won't be interrupted no matter what happens, right? Even these extraordinary events. And since we're going to be dealing with this for some time to come, uh, what we're doing right now is obviously dealing with the situation right now, but also preparing for the fall. And this relates as well to to surgeries, for example, because as we plan that, we also have to pl- plan for what. Um, doing surgeries will be like in our public health care system during influenza season. We don't know what's going to happen with COVID-19 over this next period or into into the future, but we do know that influenza season is coming in November. That always stresses our health care system, and so we have to prepare for that. So everything has to be prepared for this moment, but also um, events that are coming, and I think uh, that expectation of a very methodical approach, which is what we're trying to take based on the science, based on the advice of Dr. Henry and the BC Centre for Disease Control and our experts in all these areas, is the right approach. Uh, just following back on the uh, 3 million masks that you guys had um, uh, procured here earlier in the month, any idea how long it would take to get those to market if they were you know, deemed acceptable and they passed all the testing? Do you have any idea how long it would take to get those distributed? We're, we're working on that right now. I think the distribution can be done. Uh, the distribution isn't a problem. We have a distribution system now, so it's not a, an issue of distribution. It's ensuring that we work with our workers everywhere and all the different health authorities so that uh, you know what we want right now is for everyone to be prepared, for everyone to know, for everyone to be trained, for everyone to be briefed so that we know uh, so that there are no surprises. And that's, uh, that's what we're working on right now. So, I, I, you know, we feel that that stock of uh, respirators and 95 respirators can be brought into uh, the service and we're getting there that we've gone through the testing on a huge majority of them. 
but that uh, we now have to uh, take the steps required to bring them into force. We haven't had to do that yet. There's also a process that you might have heard of, low cleaning um, respirators mm-hmm. and re- essentially recycling them for future use. And we are doing that as well. But none of those respirators has been put into use. But it's uh, it's important to be prudent and to, to make those efforts and to continue to work to make sure that those efforts are effective so that that can be done safely. But we, we aren't planning to put those into operation. Rather, we plan to stockpile those okay. just in case we need them in the future. Right. Um, I'll get you out of here on this, Minister. Um, there's been a lot of talk, obviously, when it comes to surgeries and that you have canceled non-essential surgeries, although you often say, you know, non-essential surgeries, those are still essential surgeries that need to take place. Um, and I know you don't have necessarily um, all the data yet about how this is going to start, you know, resuming again. Uh, but just sort of when are you planning to deliver that model for how surgeries will start to, to ramp back up? Uh, I know you had talked a little bit about it yesterday, but just sort of when are we going to see more details on that? That work has been done in detail now, and it's, um, you know, what we want to present is um, a thoughtful and comprehensive plan to do that and to do that in a safe way and um, and uh, to prepare for events that could be ahead of us in the fall as well. Just to give you a sense in IHA, because I don't think we've ever given these numbers by health authority, uh, the postponed cases, the postponed surgical cases in interior health are 3,160. We've performed 2,513. When I say we, I mean doctors mm-hmm. and nurses and healthcare workers mm-hmm. have performed 2,513 scheduled and unscheduled uh, surgeries in this period. So scheduled surgeries that are um, more urgent are urgent scheduled surgeries, uh, often cancer surgeries, but other surgeries that can't wait, and unscheduled surgeries, which is emergent or emergency surgeries that have to take place within 24 to 48 hours. We've done in IHA 2,513 of those. So that work has been done. And on urgent surgeries, therefore, we're caught up. But there's two issues that that um, we're really concerned with and, and working on. One is that we've done less screening and less diagnostic testing in this period. So there may be urgent surgeries that we're going to have to learn about quickly and perform quickly, and those would obviously be near the top of the list to perform on the one hand. And uh, on the other hand, uh, getting it done in a way, uh, it's reorganizing the system again. I think our surgeons desperately want to get back to work on uh, unscheduled surgeries. I think uh, our specialty teams do, but we have to do it in a safe way. And some of the, this will, will also be linked to how we organize the healthcare system around now around COVID-19. Royal Inland, for example, is a COVID-19 center, as you know, um, but how we organize it around it. So we will be using, we have right now contracts. The public healthcare system has contracts with a number of private clinics. But those those tend not to be the most urgent surgeries, but we, but nonetheless, we may be able to perform them. Surgeries, for example, such as cataract surgeries or others, which we can perform safely in a private clinic. Those are all day surgeries, right? So they're not overnight surgeries, by definition, less serious, perhaps less serious uh, implications than others, although all very serious nonetheless. Mm-hmm. And so uh, all of that is being organized by Michael Marchbank, who's the president of the Fraser Health Authority, who's making a series of recommendations. And uh, it'll take some period once we put out the plan for us to start. But we've been working on this since the moment that we canceled surgeries because we know um, what it means to people. So uh, um, what we want to present is not a partial plan, but a plan. 
Well, Minister, thank you so much for your time. Always appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, glad we were able to catch up here. Hey, right on. Take care. I'll talk to you soon. That was BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. Well, let's take a quick break here, and I'll be back with the mayor of Sun Peaks, Mr. Al Rain. The community is not looking to increase taxes this year. We'll be talking a little bit about that after this. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show. Thanks for being with me here on Thursday. The village of Sun, Be Sun Peaks has kiboshed a planned 3% increase in property taxes here this year and will instead spread that out across the financial plans for the next two years. But even that could potentially be changed should economic impacts last longer than 2020. Of course, we're talking about this current pandemic. I'm joined on the phone now by the mayor of Sun Peaks, Mr. Al Rain. Mayor Rain, how you doing? Yeah, great. Good afternoon. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time. So uh, I just wanted to start on, on getting a general comment from you about that plan. You know, there was a 3% tax property tax increase planned here in 2020, but you guys have decided not to go forward with that. I think it's probably pretty self-explanatory as to why, but just can you speak to the challenges that the community is facing and why this was a necessary step that needed to be taken? Yeah, it's not a large amount, but it's certainly a, a symbol of our recognition that there are a lot of people that are certainly under financial pressure these days, and it's not the time for a municipality to be raising taxes. And, and when you're talking about not raising taxes and, and obviously the, the people in the community just not necessarily having the funds to be able to, to pay for some of those increases, I mean, what, what sorts of impacts are you seeing right now? I mean, you've, you know, the, the, the ski hill had to close early. I mean, what, what are you seeing in terms of revenue for your community? I imagine it's taken quite a significant hit. A huge hit. It's unbelievable. In fact, uh, you know, this impact uh, has been devastating on the tourism and the hospitality industries. You know, 90% of the businesses in Sun Peaks close their doors. So there's no revenue coming in. There's still rent. There's still cost. Uh, I mean, uh, 75 to 80% of the employees in Sun Peaks lost their job. So there's there's all kinds of stress on, on, on everyone. And certainly, you know, we decided to zero tax increase and, and we're still, we're out in the public process now and we're waiting for feedback and uh, trying to get a good feel for what people are thinking and uh, are they able to cope? And I know whenever you talk about not uh, not increasing taxes this year, there's always the concern, right, that, get, that it gets compounded uh, in, into future budgets. I mean, do you have a message maybe for the people of Sun Peaks who are thinking, you know, okay, three, not having an increase this year is great, but does that mean, you know, a 5 6 7% increase in the following years to make up for the fact that we're not going ahead with an increase this year? Yeah, no, we'll certainly take a look at it. And, you know, we, we've got to listen to what where the business community is, where the residents are and uh, take actions appropriately. I mean, certainly in the business community, I was extremely concerned. Uh, without the, uh, the, the concessions that the province has made, I'm convinced a large number of the businesses wouldn't have been able to stay in business. And the province has certainly uh, come to the party. Uh, the federal government's come on, and certainly on an individual basis, uh, not so much on the on on the business side, but there is a forty thousand dollar loan, which of which twenty five percent is forgivable if it's paid back within I think ten years. Uh, but 
certainly uh, the senior levels of government have stepped up and municipalities have to step up too. Well, Mayor Reyna, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and speak to me here today. I guess I'll get you out of here on this because, uh, you know, I was talking with uh, the Health Minister, Adrian Dix, here in the last segment, and we talked about how the province is looking towards, you know, maybe three weeks from now to start to ease things. Uh, so it's not obviously going to be a, just a full-blown full blown go do whatever you want, but I guess is there a message to people here? We're, we obviously are talking a lot more about local tourism these days because we're just not going to see that travel come in. Do you have a message for people who are looking to plan something this summer i know we're not going to be able to get into too many details about what they can do yet but you know going somewhere like sun peaks for the people of kamloops you know it might seem like a a better option than normal right now well i, I think for sure the only option we have this summer fall is regional tourism and quite frankly i i think there are a lot of people in the kamloops area who are uh, kind of getting a little bit uh, cabin fever from being stuck inside and stuck close to home for so long, I think they will want to go out. And we are making plans to uh, have businesses open. Hopefully, we don't know exactly when, but certainly open and keeping the social distancing requirements and, and setting up our operations so we're not getting people to gather together closely. But uh, certainly, we have lots of activities, you know, and hiking and biking and walking around and tennis and golf and those things can be done while you're maintaining social distancing. So we think there's still going to be people looking to come up to Sun Peaks and the restaurants I know are getting together to try and figure out how they can spread the tables and chairs and keep people uh, who aren't in one family group away from others. So we're going to be ready. Right on, Mayor Rain. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Really do appreciate it, and I'll keep my fingers crossed that someday soon we'll all feel comfortable uh, making the trip out to, to Sun Peaks. Thanks so much. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks for the time. Awesome. That was the mayor of the village of Sun Peaks, Al Rain. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today, so I want to thank all my guests for joining me, and of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here on Friday at noon.